Stand with me as we read Colossians chapter 1 together. Uh, I'll, I'll read it, and at the very end, we'll say, thanks be to God. I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to go from 1 down to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard, <clears throat> of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, um, all, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good word, work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and with patience and, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So, we're looking at, as I said, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this might be the most verses on a Sunday that we'll cover the entire time. We're going to do 14 verses today. Usually, it's going to be, as we're going through, we're going to try to slow down Colossians. It's usually going to be about three to four to five verses at a time. Uh, but today, it's going to be 14. Um, but uh, that's because this section really in the intro is one kind of cohesive unit. But... Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at the Christ hymn. I'm actually going to take two weeks just to do the Christ hymn. So a little intro from, from the book of Colossians. So if you look at chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So uh, from this kind of intro, we can see a little bit that's pretty obvious, right? Paul wrote it. He's writing it with his, with his friend Timothy. They're writing it to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So he's writing to Christians that are Christians in this city in Colossae. And of course, the normal kind of um, intro, grace and peace to you. Now, uh, we, we know that this was written by Paul. Uh, and this was not a church plant that Paul founded. Usually, as I've said on his three missionary journeys, he would go, he'd plant a church, he would stay there for a little while, he'd kind of appoint elders and keep going. That's not the case with the church at Colossians. As we saw um, in verse 7, it says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. And so Epaphras actually went to this particular city, preached the gospel, and set up a church there. And so they learned the gospel from him, one of Paul's servants, as he calls him, a dear fellow brother and a minister. Uh, so uh, Paul also, if you look at Colossians 2.1, uh, he goes, I want to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. So Paul likely never made it to Colossae. Uh, he wanted to go, but he never did make it. And so let's talk about uh, how the church got planted there and we can understand what's going on and why Paul would write such a letter. So Epaphras, um, if you remember when we preached through the book of Acts, uh, which was a long Uh, kind of a long time ago in a long sermon series, but when we went through the book of Acts, those, I don't know, 
70 sermons or whatever it was. Um, and when we got to, the, to Acts chapter 19, we talked about how Paul, whenever he went to the church uh, to Ephesus for those three years, how he would kind of work a job during the, during the day, and then towards the, later, in, in the, later in the day, he would rent out on his own dime the, the hall of Tyrannus. And he did that for three straight years on his own dime, and he would rent out the, the hall of Tyrannus, and he would preach the gospel uh, while he was there, and then he would uh, make disciples, etc. And then the next day, he'd do the same thing, go sell the tents during the day, and then rent out the hall of Tyrannus. Well, while he was doing that for those three years, likely, uh, at, at some point, Epaphras happened upon the preaching of Paul as he was uh, preaching this particular day. At some point, he went back to one of his hometowns, because we know in Colossians 4.12, he says about Epaphras that he's one of you, and so he's probably from, uh, from, from Colossae, and he went back to Colossae and alongside while he was with Colossae, he went to the two other cities that were with it, Laodicea and Hierapolis, and proclaimed the gospel in these particular three cities um, and preached Christ. And a church started. And then some five years later, when Paul was in a Roman prison, Epaphras, who had become a minister with Paul in some capacity because he calls him you know, a, a fellow minister and a dear b- beloved brother. Um, so they had become, in a lot of ways, uh, ministry partners and so he comes to Paul when Paul's in a Roman prison and tells Paul about the things that are going on in, Colo- in Colossae and some of the heresies that are uh, the wrong teaching that had uh, a wrong understanding of the gospel that had arisen. And so Paul writes this particular letter to the church to help understand Paphras because we see in chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 that he sent it back with Tychicus. And so Tychicus takes the letter back to the Colossians, and they read it. Thus we have the book of Colossians. So that's kind of how it all got started. Um, but the main church planner was Epaphras. Was Epaphras. Now, the city of Colossae, at one particular time, and it's, it's, it's situated in modern-day Turkey, but um, in one particular time, it was a very prosperous and large city. It was thriving in this wool industry, and things were going well. But as Roman rule came in, the city declined um, as... The other two cities, that Laodicea and Hierapolis that I pre- mentioned, they actually were kind of increasing and growing. And so Colossae, which used to be a pretty thriving wool city, had now become a pretty unimportant, smaller market town and easily the least significant city out of all the Pauline letters, all the Pauline letters, Colossae was pretty much the least significant city ever, right, compared to the rest. So it's pretty cool, right? Paul decides to write a letter to Colossae. It's like, you know, you look at America, it's like Paul writing a letter to Rock Hill. You know, Rock Hill compared to all the cities, you're important. I'm not saying you're not important and you're not significant. I think you're all awesome and I love Rock Hill, right? Rock Hill's the best. We think we're awesome. We are awesome. We send more players to the NFL than any other city per capita. But my whole point is, um, if you look at all of America, most people think, um, well, I've never even heard of Rock Hill. Like, I've heard of the big cities, right? I've heard of the big cities. It's kind of like Paul writing a city to Rock Hill and then also Chicago and New York and L.A. and Detroit and Houston, you know, and Rock Hill. And you're like, Rock Hill, that's right. We got an NFL team. So um, it's kind of like that. It was, they used to be great, but they had become small. Now, the general let, kind of info of the letter, you've got Colossians 1, 2, 3, and 4. You've got four chapters. And like Ephesians, the, the first half is kind of doctrinal. And the second half is more application-oriented. Um, and the, the letter itself, Colossians, is written largely to Gentile converts, not necessarily uh, people who are Jewish, not just Gentiles in general, but Gentile converts. And so the reason why is at least, there's at least three reasons. One, 
Uh, he talks about them as outsiders being brought in. He does that in a chapter one of, about at least three times. Um, there's a huge kind of scarcity of, of, of Old Testament allusions. There's not very many Old Testament allusions. And why would you mention Old Testament allusions to Gentiles? They don't even know what it is generally. Um, and then also the, the problems or the vices, the sinful habits are more Gentile in the, in the letter, and so likely it, but not Jewish ones, and so it's, it's written to Gentile converts. Um, and so uh, the issues that Paul is going to address as you look through, as we read through and study through over the next, I don't know, 15 or 20 weeks of Colossians, uh, the first half will be, as I said, doctrine. He's going to zoom in on the person and work of Christ, not just in the Christ hymn, but even throughout chapters 1 and 2. He'll talk about um, the fact that he's 100% God and 100% man, correcting any kind of wrong doctrines that would flow from that. And then as you get to the second half, all the correct ways to apply that doctrine is going to come from the first half. Things like identity, acceptance, the heresy that the Colossians were facing. Uh, It was a bit deceptive because um, those that were in Colossae, uh, we're saying the, the kind of heretics that had come in, they're saying the, the work of Christ on the cross is necessary. It is important. So they were saying that, but the deceptive part is that they were saying um, it was necessary, it is important, but um, as now is kind of a real experience to walk with God, and then uh, you'll really start walking with God. You need to observe things which Paul addresses in chapter 2, like asceticism. This will be a word we'll say quite often. Asceticism is just neglecting yourself things. So an ascetic would be like, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat at all, and I'm going to whip myself because I deserve to be punished. And so I'm just going to uh, do things that... that hinder me or give me things that I need because if I hinder myself and I don't do this and if if I'm an ascetic the Lord sees my kind of paltry estate and how low I'm letting myself get in front of him and he'll say oh that guy really loves me and so ascetics neglect normal things in life because they think that it kind of gives them higher favor with God and so he's going to address asceticism and that's what they had come in and said what God really wants to see you do is be super humble and just neglect for yourself from stuff and then he knows you really love him and so he's going to address asceticism uh, as this real experience if you really love God you'll be an ascetic or if you really love God you're going to start having all these visions and if without if you don't have visions then God, you're not really walking with God. He's going to say, no, that's not necessary. Asceticism, not necessary. Having visions, not necessary. Even the practicing of certain festivals, these things uh, are not necessary. So Paul wants them to know that Christ's death is both necessary and sufficient. The death of Christ, that's your hope. Not, not just necessary, but it's also sufficient. You don't have to add things to it. So that's, that's kind of a general uh, of what's going on in the whole letter. So we're going to zoom in, as I said, on verses 1 through 14, and this will be about prayer. So today, uh, Paul, as he's talking to the Colossians, remember, he's never Sam, uh, he's going to say, I have been praying for you. Even though I don't, I don't know you, I've been praying for you. And so in, in verses 3 through 8, uh, it's kind of the report of the prayer. I have been praying for you. Just wanted to let you know, here's the report that I've been praying for you. And he, he, he talks about what those things are. And then in verses 9 through 14, he gives the specific contents of the prayer. Now, you could, uh, and some commentators do, divide those 3 through 8 9 through 14 into two sections. Um, I'm going to take them as one section because they are, in all the verses, talking about prayer. So, uh, and just know that 3 through 8 kind of is, I have been praying for you, 
I'm just letting you know I've been praying for you and that God's going to do stuff, kind of. Uh, but then when you get to 9 through 14, here's the specific literal things I say. Uh, and so I'm just going to put them all together and we're going to talk about four notes on prayer as we're going to see it, or four elements uh, of prayer. Now, um, I want to make sure that even though this sermon is primarily built around elements of prayer, this is what prayer should have, this is what prayer should have, this is what prayer should have, let's not miss the forest for the trees, okay? So instead of zooming in and just saying, my prayer life needs to have these particular four things, take the one step back and don't miss the forest for the trees. Paul is praying for people, and he's telling them. That's pretty important. Not only, he's never met them. And likely, he's doing it three times a day for them in the kind of the normal Jewish three times a day thing. So uh, as we go in and we start talking about prayer, don't miss this. Uh, you should be praying for people, not just yourself, but for others. And you should tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. And here's what I prayed for you. The Lord laid on my heart to pray for these particular things for you. And I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you. I care about you and I love you. And here's the specific things that I prayed for you. It's, it's good to do that. And I think when you hear people say that, it's super have an elder meeting every Monday and we talk about business. But one, we just, we get the list and we just go through the list and we pray for a solid hour. And then wherever we finish, we stop and we pick up the next Sunday if we can remember or the next month if we can remember where we were. Otherwise, we backtrack and we pray for you. But we pray for every single one of you by name for several minutes um, every single month. I think it's encouraging all the things. Hey, it's good in your life. We know what's going on in your life generally, and we pray for you. And it's, I think it's encouraging to know. Hey, it's good to know that we are, we are specifically being prayed for by our church elders. Um, so my point is, it's super encouraging when you're praying for people, when you tell them and they hear that, like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Not just that I'm praying for you, but I'm praying this for you. I'm praying this for you, and you can say it. Don't miss the forest for the trees. All right, here we go. So... We're talking about four elements of prayer. Four elements of prayer. And they're, they're pretty simple to see. We always, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. The love that you have for all the saints. So, number one, first note or first element of prayer. I know it says, it says notes there. I should change that. Four elements of prayer. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. An element of prayer is thankfulness. When you pray, there should be an element of thankfulness. Um, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard. And what are the, some of the things that he's praying for? What, what is he thankful for? Since we heard of your faith and of the love that you have for the saints. So he's specifically thankful for the faith and the love that the Colossians have uh, for other people. Now, notice Paul says, when we pray for you. So, again... You should be praying for people. Uh, and he says, when we do this, we're going to be praying uh, specifically, thanking God for your faith in Christ and the love that you have for people. Faith, J-Mac uh, defines, that's John MacArthur. Um, J-Mac uh, defines faith as being persuaded something is true and trusting in it. Now, just a side note, the Christian faith um, is not shot in the dark. It's not just leap of faith to hope this is right. The Christian faith um, follows logical understandings. And whenever we have faith in something, it's because we've been persuaded by really good evidence that this is true and now I'm trusting in it. So when we're talking about faith, we don't just mean blind faith. I don't need to see anything. Don't, don't give me anything, any kind of evidence. That's not what I need. I just want to bl blindly believe stuff. That's not the Christian faith. That might be other stuff. 
That's hocus pocus stuff, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is seeing real laid out evidence and saying, that makes total sense and I believe in it and trusting in it. Genuine faith, whenever we have, so he's praying for faith and love. Genuine faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, It's inevitably, whenever you have faith, going to result in a changed life. It's going to result in a changed life, which means faith comes love. The, the result of that, the changed life, is that you have love for other people. And so both of these things, Paul is saying, I'm thanking God that I see these things. Because ultimately, if you have faith for, in God and love for other people, both of these are gifts from God. You didn't conjure up either one of these things by yourself. God gifted you the gift of faith. God gifted you the gift of love for other people. And Paul is praising the Lord. I praise the Lord that I see these things. In his kindness, he gave you these things. And I am thanking him that he has done it. And so faith and love point us ultimately to our hope, which lays, is laid up for us in heaven, which we're going to see here in, in, uh, when we get to verse 5. So the first element of prayer is thankfulness. And so Paul specifically you, you thank God for how you see Jesus working in other lives. Paul says, I see God working in your life because you have faith in him and a love for other people. So just think about it. How, what are you thankful for how you see God working in other people's lives? It could be faith and love. It could be numbers of us, even in your own family. Um, what are some things that you're thankful for that the Lord's doing in their life? This is what I see Jesus doing in your life, Colossae, what, from what I hear from Epaphras. That's what you should pray for and you should tell other people. That's number one. The second element of prayer is, and I love this one. I just, I love this one. Understanding. Understanding. Starting in verse 5, we're going to go down to verse 8. You can go ahead and put up number 2. Lovey. All right, so number 2, understanding. Pray that you have an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel. Pray that you have an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel. And I say ever-increasing because the finite never fully comprehends the infinite. And so it's always ever-increasing. And the ever-increasing, verse 5, watch this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he's going to use lots of gospel here. And he's saying, I'm thanking the Lord because I know of you because of the hope laid up for, for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, Let's not miss this because this is specific to the Colossians, right? He calls it the word of truth, the gospel. And he puts those two little phrases as synonyms beside each other. The word of truth, the gospel. And the point that he's doing that is for a reason. He's saying that the good news, the gospel, is truth. And he's putting those two together specifically to combat the false teachers of the Colossians. So if you look in chapter 2, verse 8... See to it that none of, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Those Coloss- false Colossians have come in with things that aren't true, but the gospel is the word of truth, the gospel. So he's calling the gospel the word of truth by saying this is truth and what they're saying is not. It's very specific to the Colossians when he puts those two synonyms together, the word of truth, the gospel, com- combating false teaching and heretics that have come in there, which is something that we hold true, right? There's lots of false teachings that spring up all around us. Every five to ten years, there's a new one in Western, society, Western civilization. Uh, and we say, this is the word of truth, the gospel, compared to these false philosophies and ideologies. Uh, and the way that 
we understand those things to be false um, is because we are praying that we have great understanding to have an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel. The more we understand the gospel, the easier it is to see false teachings, right? And so he says to pray that you have this uh, greater understanding of the gospel, which has come to you indeed, indeed the whole world. So let's, let's notice some of these things that he's saying about the gospel. Um, in which, so you heard it before, you heard this gospel, and it's come to you, and it's indeed now this gospel is going into the whole world. Uh, this whole world doesn't mean universalism, just a side note, but here he goes. And it is, this gospel is also bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the days you heard it and understood it. So here we see more language about understanding this grace of God and truth, this gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So God, Epaphras came when he heard it, and then he shared it with the Colossians, um, our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister in Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's, came, he's come and told me. And so... Um, when we see in, in this second section of understanding, and we pray that we have an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel, here we can also see um, three little works of the gospel. Multiple works, but I see at least three w- works of the gospel. So when we pray that we have an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel, we should see at least these kind of three works happening in our life. You want to have a greater understanding of the gospel, you'll see these three things happening. One, that you'll hear it. Uh, we, we know that the gospel has to be heard. Romans 10, how great are, those, the fee, great are the feet of the people that come proclaim the gospel. The gospel must be heard. It's good news. It must be proclaimed and it must be heard. It's the grace of God and truth. And this, of course, involves actually telling people the gospel, right? And so once it's heard and it's trusted in and believed, after it's heard, it's also experienced. When they experience it, it says that it's bearing fruit and growing, bearing fruit, I'm sorry, bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. This means that um, whenever you trust in Christ, that there should be a continual um, multiplying or increasing effect of the gospel's effect in your life. You should become more and more like Christ. So a work of the gospel is that you hear it. A work of the gospel is also that you are experiencing it. It's, it's, a reminder that if you are truly regenerate, if you are truly saved, you should be bearing fruit in your life. You should be growing in your life. You should be um, no, understanding the gospel more, understanding all its implications, understanding what it, what it means in your life, and becoming more like Christ. And then lastly, you can also see the work of the gospel, not that you hear and experience it, but that you share it. You become a sharer of the gospel. That's what happened with Epaphras. Colossians heard it from Epaphras. He heard it from Paul, and now he's wanting more people to hear. And so those are the effects of the gospel. We, we get an ever-increasing understanding of it, which means we want to hear it more, we want to experience it more, and we want to share it more. Those are at least three works of the gospel that we can see right there in verses 5 through 9. All right, so that's the second one. When we're praying, we pray that we also have an understanding. We're, we're, we pray with thankfulness, and we pray with understanding. Those are two elements of prayer. The third element of prayer is in verse 9. And this is where Paul shifts. And you can see he's going to actually be super specific about some of the things he prays. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking. So here's, here's some specific content of prayer that I come to the Lord with on your behalf. You who are Colossians, who are Christians, you need to grow in Christ 
And I am petitioning the Lord that these things would help you in your life to help you grow in Christ. That's number three. So petition. Prayers of petition that you will grow in your faith. Prayers. So verse, as you look through verses 9 through 11, we've, he's kind of talked about justification. And that's number two, that we have an understanding of the gospel when you're justified. Now he's going to talk about sanctification. These are, this is what sanctification looks like. These are the prayers of petition that you're going to grow in your faith. Um, he's going to list out some things. So how will you actually grow? Within this prayer that Paul has for the Colossians, we see how you actually grow in your faith. Now, there's a lot more, but there's, there's at least five in this little section in verses 9 through 11. At least five results of being filled uh, with the knowledge of his will. That's the, that's, that's the specific way he says it. So watch. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What, what I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do is that you will be filled with all the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so Paul introduces kind of our series title here, Filled. Uh, whenever you saw it here, when the little wine glass is filling up. It fills all the way and starts overflowing. This is what, this is what it's like. You know, we, we are filled all the way to the top with knowledge. of under. It says that you may be filled with the knowledge. Now, in Greek, the word knowledge is gnosis. It's gnosis. Now, Paul, in this particular, uh, this particular verse here, isn't going to just use gnosis. He's going to use epigenosis. This little epi is like a pawn in the Greek. And so basically what Paul is doing, he, he says, I'm praying that you'll be filled with epigenosis. Uh, and so he's giving it a little emphasis. Like, the, I'm praying that you'll, have, you'll be filled with, have, they have gnosis. They're claiming this, this gnosis. I'm praying that you'll, have, you'll be filled with epigenosis. And so this little added... Per, preposition of epi is intensifying the deep and thorough knowledge that he's praying that they're going to have. Um, And he's saying, unlike the Colossian heretics who think they have gnosis, I'm praying that you have epigenosis. Let's intensify deep, thorough knowledge. And the Bible views this um, Christians that if we have deep understanding of doctrinal absolutes, if we really do learn theology it's foundational to our godly living. Like if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we should know what the Bible says. And so he says, I'm praying that you'll be filled then with all the fullness of his knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what are the results of that? In verses 9 through 11, he says there's at least five things that result from having this being filled with the knowledge of his will. If you're filled, like the series title that we're doing, here's what happens. That you may be filled with the spiritual, well, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as. So when you are filled, here's five things that happen. are worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You can see that. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. When you're filled with all the knowledge, the first thing is that, is that you have a worthy walk. Walk um, in the Hebrew. Uh, when the Hebrews would speak about your life, they would call it a walk. That your, your life is a walk. Your life is a journey on the walk with the Lord. And so this means walk means our daily conduct always. And the Bible speaks about walking 
in things all the time. We walk in humility, Ephesians 4. We walk in purity, Romans 13. We walk in contentness, 1 Corinthians 7. We walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5. We walk in good works, Ephesians 2. We walk differently to the world, Ephesians 4. We walk in love, Ephesians 5. We walk in light, Ephesians 5. We walk in wisdom, Ephesians 5. We walk in truth, 3 John. So it talks about walking. And so if we're filled with all the knowledge of his will, we will have a worthy walk. The more you're filled with Christ, the more worthy your walk is. That's the first result. The second result is also a fruitful life. You can see, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. So the next thing is that we have a fruitful life so that you may bear fruit for Christ in every good work. Um, Don't miss this. Fruit is a byproduct of righteousness. You have been given Christ's righteousness. You have, it has been imputed to you or counted or reckoned to your account. Boom, righteous. It's been, you've been justified. Fruit is a byproduct of that. Fruit is a byproduct of righteousness, which means if you are counted, Christ, or counted in Christ as righteous, now you should bear fruit. You and I, as as believers in Christ, have been given Christ's righteousness, so now we can bear fruit for him. One commentator says this. This was, uh, I think it was Garland. He says, unfortunately, Christians do not always put the truth they believe into practice, right? We've been given Christ's righteousness, so now fruit's a byproduct of that righteousness. We should have it. And he says this. Unfortunately, Christians do not always put the truth they believe into practice. They don't bear fruit, um, One person draws from this book, Neil Postman, he wrote this book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's kind of like a, kind of an important work in that it highlights just how banal we can be, like how we just watch things that don't make really amount to anything and we just spend lots of time doing nothing. Uh, It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he says, and he argues that television itself, uh, since its kind of inception over the last 50 years in in the American life, television has habituated or made us have habits, uh, its watchers to such a low information action ratio. That means I watch it and it doesn't make me do anything. I'm literally just watching it to veg. Uh, Television has habituated its watchers to such a low information uh, action ratio that people are accustomed to learning good ideas, parenthetical, even from sermons, learning good ideas, but then doing nothing about it. TV has caused you to do that. Oh, that's an awesome idea, but it's on TV, so I don't have to do anything about it. And so TV has actually caused us that when we hear good ideas, even from sermons, that we don't have to do anything. We learn enough to talk about intelligently, but we never follow through on the action. Sometimes preachers feel like they've actually done their job just by merely presenting information um, or, or just pre- presenting a need so people know about it. Paul does not tell us, but... Because their faith has led to concrete results. The test of faith, it makes any, the, the test of faith is whether it makes any difference in the way we live and treat others. So being filled with all the fullness of God is not the goal. It's not the goal just that you're good at doctrine and you can talk about it. The point is that you actually have a fruitful life, that you bear fruit to Jesus in every good work. That's the second thing that happens. A worthy walk, a fruitful life, knowledge, that you may increase in your knowledge of him. So it says to walk in a manner worthy of him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Um, it's important that as we're being filled, that we actually increase in our knowledge. And increasing in our knowledge causes us to love God more. It causes us to obey God more. It causes us to believe God or trust Him or increase our faith in Him more. So knowledge, we must increase our knowledge. Also, the next thing that being filled, you can see it right here, increase the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Strength according to His glorious might. This means that our stults of being filled. You may be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. This means that our strength is not a one-time thing given to us at justification, and then we just kind of live on that for the rest of our life. Instead, it's continually strengthening us by the power of the Spirit. He's given it to us. And notice how we're strengthened. It's according to His glorious might. That's pretty awesome. This means that the ongoing power that's made available to us is the limitless power of God. So being filled with all of His knowledge means you are strengthened by the power of the Spirit. So you, you should continually ask for that strength to be given to you so that you can endure. And then the last one you can see is endurance. Number five, endurance with patience and joy. And this just simply means that this is a prayer whenever he gives us endurance that we actually embrace trials and difficulties in our life and we endure through them with joy. So we're all going to have trials of some kind of various kinds and whenever they come that we literally will endure through that with joy. So those are the five kind of results of being filled with a knowledge of his will. So when we look at number three, it's a petition. We pray that you will grow in your faith. And Paul offers five ways to grow in your faith right here. Through walking worthy, fruitful life, knowledge, strength, and endurance. And then he brings us to this last one. Starting uh, in verse 12. Starting in verse 12. Giving thanks. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so here, number four is giving thanks to God the Father. It's, it's praising him. It's sim obviously similar to the first one, but we're going to call it praise. Prayers of praise, thanking God for your salvation. What he's specifically praying for is he's thanking God for their salvation. Giving thanks to God the Father who has, what has he done to you, Colossians? He has qualified you to share in his inheritance. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. He has transferred you to the kingdom of the son he loves. So this is talking about our salvation. So give thanks to God because he has first qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. To qualify means to make sufficient or to empower or to um, give kind of authority to or make fit. So God has qualified us through the finished work of Christ. You've literally been qualified now for the inheritance. That's amazing. Not only that, the second thing is he tells you that you've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. Every single one of us, because we're born in the line of Adam, had all intentionally, willingly sinned, and we are on a pathway towards destruction. And he has delivered us from that domain of darkness. This is where we were bound before Christ. But he hasn't just delivered us from the, bound of, from, uh, from the domain of darkness of his beloved son. So he's removed us from walking down the path, the path of domain of darkness. And now transferred us, as he says, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So now we, we were bound to go to hell. And now we were going to go to Christ. Now, I think I've told you this before. 
but I used to, uh, I used to go to the University of South Carolina. Uh, I don't go to college anymore, actually, but I did go to the University of South Carolina, not used to. Uh, but one day, after being there for three years, um, I decided the Lord's calling me into ministry. Lord, I know that God's calling me into ministry. And I go to my mom, and I tell her, I think God's calling me into ministry, and I don't want to go to USC anymore. I want to go to a college that's going to teach me uh, how to be a minister. She's like, okay, that sounds good to me. I want to go to the Baptist college, which, you know, is really expensive. Okay. She was just like, that sounds great. My mom was awesome. And so uh, I transferred to Charleston Southern University, and I finished out my undergrad there. Um, It would be foolish for me when I'm at Charleston Southern to wake up one morning to get in my car, and instead of going to the building right there on campus to drive all the way to Columbia and walk into the one of the classrooms and sit down and say, ready for class. They would say, you don't go to this college. You've transferred. You go to Charleston Southern now. This is what's happened for us. It's foolish. Once we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of sun, he loves, to go back to the old lifestyle or go back to the old ways. The good news is you've been transferred. I'm not calling the USC the domain of darkness. We beat Auburn yesterday, and it was awesome. I'm wearing my Gamecock colors for it. My point is, you don't get in your car and drive back to the old way. And the whole, my whole point is, because of that, we don't wake up as someone who's been transferred in the kingdom of, of, of heaven and live the old way anymore. We live now for the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what's true of you. And so we praise God for our salvation because he has literally transferred you away from the domain of darkness and put you in the kingdom of his beloved son. Praise him for this work in your life. When you are having a rough day, praise the Lord that he has transferred you. This transference is an amazing truth of God. So now we have the four elements of prayer. If you've always thought to yourself, I stink at prayer, I don't have good outlines, if I just had some kind of some kind of little outline, then I would know how to pray. Use this one. Start with saying thankfulness. What, do you, what are all the, thankful, the things that you're thankful for in the way that God's working in other people's lives? Pray for understanding. God, help me understand the gospel more. And then you can petition him for things, whether it be specific things that you need in your life or just petitioning him for, for the things that you know you need to grow in your faith. And then lastly, you have this last one, praise Praise God for your own salvation. The first one where we're thanking God for what he's doing in other people's lives. Here we're praying, thank you for this amazing work you've done in my life. So I want to close with a few applications here. Things that we kind of covered throughout the sermon. And uh, there's four, four applications. They're not on the screen. Just let's just listen to them. Number one, um, something that I think we all should strive for is this, that we should seek truth. We should seek to know truth. Um, it's a good thing for us to want to know what is true and to seek to understand it. And that's solely found in the foundation of his word. You want to know what, what truth is? It's right here. So application number one, seek truth, understand it, and seek it here. He's let us understand things. There's truth outside. I know it's kindness. Um, but here it is, and we should seek truth here. Number two. Strive to love other people. The Lord has commanded us 
to love other people around us. Paul thanks the Lord that he sees the Colossians love other people, which means we should love other people and offer support to other people and try to help them grow in their faith. He says, I'm seeing the Lord grow in you in your faith these ways. We should want to do that for other people. The best place that you can do that is your community group. God has, if you're in a community group, placed you in a group of people sovereignly. He's ordained it. He's, he's providentially put you around 12 people in this church that you can um, see each other on an ongoing basis, not just on your night, but here on Sundays or even um, other times throughout the week when you get together for pizza and football or whatever you do. Um, and in those opportunities that you have throughout the week, you should strive to help each other grow in the faith. How can I help the people in my group grow in their faith? I want to pray for them. I want to read scriptures with them. I want to encourage them. I want to hear what's going on in their life. This is what it means when we say loving other people. So no truth, love other people. The third one is this. Seek to live a life that's worthy of the Lord. That's what he says in verse 10, that we want to live, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The world knows that we are believers by the way we walk. And they'll know who Christ is by the way we walk. And so seek to live a life worthy of the Lord. And lastly is this one. Um, I, I didn't write it down, but there's a Chesterton quote uh, in one of the commentaries I read. I'm winging it here. But basically what he says is uh, contentment is maybe the most high priority of the Christian life. And Christians should not be ones who complain and argue about things all the time. But instead, they should be the ones who are most content. Number four, live a life of thanksgiving and joy, not one of complaining and entitlement. We should be the most content people because we have Christ. So live a life then, therefore, when you're content of thanksgiving and joy. I am praising the Lord for the things that he's given me. He didn't have to give me anything. Look what he's given. Rather than feeling entitled to complaining about the things we don't have. We should be the most content people there are. No truth, love other people, live a worthy life for the Lord, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and live a life of thanksgiving and joy and contentment rather than complaining and entitlement. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, amazing text that starts us off in understanding the good news of the gospel and how it was given to the Colossians um, and that they have the truth the word of the gospel, and that because of that, you've given it to us. And as it says in verse 14, now in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed, and our sins have been forgiven in Christ. And so, Lord, help us um, walk in a manner that's worthy of this. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.